The briefing is brought to you in association with the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai is a place for city leaders, developers, architects and designers to come together and innovate for the future of urban spaces. It's an opportunity for the Global South to convene in the Global South. It's a testbed for real-world solutions that will shape the future of people and planet. You can hear from the innovative thinkers and inspirational voices that drove the narrative at this year's edition by listening to Monocle's special episodes of The Briefing, recorded live at Expo City Dubai in March. Find and listen to the shows now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum 2024. Collaborate. Innovate. Transform. You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 7th of February, 2024, on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. We're live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermak. Coming up on today's program. We're also determined to use any pause to continue to pave a diplomatic path forward to a just and lasting peace and security for the region. Antony Blinken's Mideast tour continues amid talk of a ceasefire proposal from Hamas. We'll have the latest. Also, Argentina's president, Javier Millet, is meeting with Israel's Bibi Netanyahu, hoping to get away from this. We'll talk about Malay's trip and the crackdown on protesters back home in Argentina. We'll also look at Lufthansa's striking ground staff. We'll check in on today's snap elections in Azerbaijan. And why Thailand's ports are watching out for elephant pants from China. No, that's not pants for elephants, but imprinted elephant patterns on trousers for humans. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Chris Termack. There is finally some movement towards a ceasefire in Gaza. After Israel and allies presented a proposal to Hamas, the Palestinian group has now reportedly responded with its own plan, proposing a four and a half month ceasefire during which all hostages would be released and Israel would pull back from Gazan territory. It is a concrete proposal, but that does not mean that this war is over by any stretch. Middle East correspondent Hannah McCarthy joins us now for more from Jerusalem. Hannah, thanks for coming on the show. What do we know about Hamas's plan at this point and how much it differs from Israel's own version? Sure. So Hamas's overarching aim is to have a complete end uh, to the war in Gaza. That's what they want. And, and you know that's what they, they hope to achieve by the end of the proposal that we're hearing details of today. That is contrary to what we're hearing from Israel, who has said uh, it's not willing to end you know, the war in Gaza and its aim remains you know, the total annihilation of Hamas. The proposal we've heard today is, you know, a four and a half month, three stage phase uh, that would, you know, end with, you know, Hamas handing over all of the hostages um, and, you know, they would be in an interim ceasefire. And Hamas is hoping that by the end of that four and a half month process, that there would be a total end to the war. We haven't heard anything from Israel yet, you know, about you know, whether they will accept that. What is your sense of what we might hear from Israel when we do eventually hear from them? I mean, as you said there, it is quite different from their own version. They don't necessarily have an interest in ending this war right now. Where does this go from here? 
well, they're certainly under you know significant public pressure from the families of hostages who've learned that more uh, hostages you know, are believed to be dead than you know previously uh, stated by the Israeli authorities. There are real concerns that you know any further delay will jeopardize the chances of their loved ones coming back. Uh, at the same time, we are seeing you know, Israeli media targeting the families of hostages, saying you know they're helping Hamas, that you know they need to tone down their campaigning. Uh, what it comes down to in, in many ways is a political calculation by Netanyahu, who kind of, you know, if he doesn't accept this, may lose the support of, you know, more moderate figures like Benny Gantz. Uh, but at the same time, if he does agree to this hostage deal, may lose support from more right wing factions from the coalition. So a lot will depend on the political calculation there for Netanyahu. So that's the internal sort of strife and, and debate that's going on. What about externally? I mean, Antony Blinken is also still in the region, the U.S. Secretary of State. What does the U.S. think of this plan? And do you get the sense that they might also be pushing Bibi Netanyahu to agree a ceasefire? So what we've seen is the U.S. has been a much stronger supportive, uh, uh, has been much more proactive than, for example, Netanyahu in trying to get the hostages released. Uh, you know, Biden has taken you know quite a personal interest in this issue, and, and I think Anthony Blinken will certainly be certainly be encouraging uh, you know this deal to be agreed. He has arrived in Israel, and you know I'm I'm sure will be counselling Israelis to accept it. Uh, you know what we though did see is that you know the U.S. may be over overstepped on one kind of issue with in relation to Saudi Arabia. You know they suggested that you know there could be uh, no ceasefire and you know normalization between Saudi uh, and Israel could still be on the cards. Um, and you know we heard a statement today um, from uh, the Saudi foreign ministry saying that you know there has to be concrete steps taken toward a Palestinian statehood before there would be normalization uh, of relations between Israel and Saudi. Well, tell us a little bit more about that also from Saudi Arabia and kind of their role here. Will that also put any pressure at all on Israel? Do you get the sense? I mean, Bibi Netanyahu has been pretty clear about not wanting a Palestinian state. Is there any talk of that in Israel at this point? I mean, I think support for the idea of a Palestinian state has decreased uh, remarkably um, over the last year and even before that. Um, you know, this is not, and, and the 7th of October has certainly, you know, decreased support among the public um, for that concept. At the same time, you know, there is clear international movement towards, you know, uh, developing a process that would lead to a, a concrete Palestinian state. Saudi Arabia has said that, you know, it is willing to normalize relations with Israel, which is an important you know, carrot for Israel in the region. You know, many Israelis I spoke to talked to spoke about how important that was to them, and they said they are willing to normalize relations with Israel if there are irreversible steps taken towards Palestinian statehood. At the at the moment, we're not hearing rhetoric from the Israeli government that is you know talking about a Palestinian statehood. But you know, at the same time, we often you know don't hear about uh, more concrete language until it's been agreed. Well, and what is your sense of some of the other players in the region? I mean, Egypt and Qatar in particular, they've been mediating these talks between Israel and Hamas. How has that been going? How are they kind of seen in their role as mediators also from Israel's side? I mean, I think Qatar has, you know, played an incredibly important role in these hostage negotiations. Uh, they are playing, uh, they have a very, very close working relationship with the Israeli uh, security uh, authorities. 
Uh, at the same time, they have been on the receiving end of public criticism from Netanyahu, who has said, you know, they're not working hard enough to release the hostages. We, Qatar also kind of, you know, saw protests uh, by Jewish Americans and Israelis outside uh, its embassies abroad. You know, hostages are saying, hostages, families of the hostages are saying, you know, they're not putting enough pressure on Hamas, uh, you know, and they're funding Hamas. Uh, so they're definitely at a, in a kind of, you know, a pressurized point now, I think, in terms of their role. But at the same time, it's been a fundamental role. Uh, and again, Egypt, you know, has also reasserted itself in the region. Uh, and it's, you know, this kind of, these negotiations have certainly given uh, Egypt a more prominent role uh, in the Palestinian issue than they've had, you know, in recent decades. Thanks very much, Hannah. A story will continue to follow across our shows here on Monaco Radio. That was Hannah McCarthy. Now here's Sophie Monhan-Coombs with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Chris. Two people have been killed by Russian airstrikes in Kyiv, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has said. Moscow launched a series of missiles across Ukraine overnight, which also hit the second city, Kharkiv, and Mykolaiv in the south. Swedish prosecutors will drop their investigation into explosions on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 gas pipelines and hand their evidence to Germany. Sweden's prosecution authority said it had concluded that Swedish jurisdiction did not apply to the case. Blizzards and freezing rain have caused widespread disruption to China's Lunar New Year travel rush. The severe winter weather caused operators to cancel trains and flights. Travellers will make an estimated 9 billion trips over the famously busy 40-day holiday period. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Chris. Thanks very much, Sophie. Now, Argentina's president, Javier Millet, has been escaping a very public fight over reforms back home and also heading to Israel for a meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. It is his first foreign visit since becoming president and, among other things, he's promised to move Argentina's embassy to Jerusalem. Well, Amy Booth is managing editor of the Buenos Aires Herald. She joins us now from the Argentine capital. Amy, how much of a shift is this for Argentina with this visit to Israel? I mean, this sends a really unambiguous signal about what Millet's foreign policy towards Israel and Palestine is going to look like. Um, We know that Millet is, well, he's long been a vocal um, proponent of Israel and a vocal defender of Judaism. So it's not really a surprise. Um, But I mean, I think it really does send a clear signal because we're in a region where, for example, Lula in neighboring Brazil has come out quite strongly calling for Israel to stop what it's doing and backing South Africa's um, International Court of Justice claims. So has Gustavo Petro in Colombia. So it really bucks the trend in that sense. Well, yeah, it's, it's a good point you make there in terms of also the region in Latin America. How do you feel that is going to play out? Is, is Millet kind of isolating himself a bit on this or taking a very different position? He's, he's already obviously sort of isolating himself in terms of his domestic path compared to some of the other Latin American countries. I mean, not necessarily. So Paraguay, for instance, has also has also backed Tel Aviv in this situation. Um, and I think it puts the... Argentine foreign policy position a lot closer to that of the US. Yeah, that's a, a fair point there, absolutely. I mean, and could you tell us a little more about the embassy move in particular? Do you get a sense of where that might be going? This was a campaign promise of Millet as well. How likely is it actually to happen that the Argentine embassy would go to Jerusalem? 
Well, it was the very first thing that he said when he got onto the tarmac, right? So yesterday, as soon as he arrived in Tel Aviv's Ben-Gurion airport, um, there was videos of him being received by Israel's foreign minister and saying in his very first words that uh, he was promising to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, the question of whether or not that happens... Uh, I mean, it remains to be seen. It sounds like the sort of thing that he could do. Um, but I mean, we've seen that, you know, some of the other plans that he's had uh, are struggling to get through Congress at the moment. So, um, you know, he may find that he gets sidetracked by issues of domestic policy. But yeah, I think it's something that he could do. Well, it is something, as you say, this this visit is coming at a, at a particularly difficult time back home. There were protests. There have been many protests over his domestic policies. What can you tell us about what's been happening on that in the last 24 hours? Yeah. So just for a little context, um, in late December, Millet presented a bill that contained more than 600 articles that he called his omnibus bill. And it was basically an attempt to radically reform all kinds of issues in Argentina's economy, tax system, uh, Argentina's state. You know, it looked at massive privatizations. There was labor reform in there. Uh, and that has been being debated in Congress over the past week or so. What has happened is last week, Deputies approved the bill in general in a, in a shortened form because around half of it had already been cut out by the time it got it got to the vote. But then they had to go through voting on the articles one by one. And this was obviously going to be very delicate, very contentious, because there were people who'd been saying yes, but a lot. So, you know, we support the bill overall. We support the spirit of this reform, but we don't agree with particular companies being privatized or we would only do this if there's some other way that we're going to get more money into our provinces, that kind of thing. And so um, in a context where it looks like he hadn't really negotiated the support he needed. Yesterday, there was a shocking defeat that basically saw the entire thing being sent back to Congress commissions. So it sort of wiped out a couple of weeks progress on this. Um, in parallel, this has been, you know, a lot of people are protesting outside Congress against this because a lot of opposition to things like um, privatizations, labor reform, it strips away environmental protests protections. And in that context, the police have cracked down really hard. So, you know, 30 journalists were injured and over 100 people were injured on Thursday night when they used rubber bullets, tear gas, water cannon. Uh, so it's really quite acrimonious, the whole process. Well, Amy, before we let you go, just one other bit of news from Latin America we wanted to ask you about. Chile's ex-president, Sebastián Piñera, was killed in a helicopter crash. What can you tell us? Yeah, this was an immensely shocking piece of news yesterday. Um, so what we know is that he was in a helicopter. He he often used to fly a helicopter uh, around Chile's south. It's not it's not that surprising in that sense. But yeah, he he was in this helicopter and the helicopter crashed into a lake. And yeah, the the police recovered bodies, basically. And so this has been really shocking to Chile because this is a guy who was known as the guy who almost, if you like, rehabilitated the right in Chile because um, 
the right was often linked with the Pinochet dictatorship. And this was a guy who was a sort of smart new figure of the right who disavowed the dictatorship, but at the same time espoused conservative politics. And so he had been president twice uh, between 2010 and 2022, non-consecutive terms. Um, and yeah, he I mean, he oversaw a lot of protests and he was controversial in that sense. But yeah, it's a real shock that he's died in a helicopter crash. Yes, absolutely. Sebastian Piñera, quite the figure in Chile. Amy Booth, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. The Foreign Desk is Monocle Radio's weekly world affairs programme. We tackle the biggest global news stories as well as those too often left untold. I've been out on the streets of Lagos. People are unable to withdraw their cash. Fights have broken out in banking halls. As well as the occasional retelling of events from days long past. The gates opened and in came this horse, absolutely huge, made of wood. People were asking, you know, what's it for? Is it some kind of icon? Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. There were a lot of diplomatic efforts by NATO and NATO allies. We really made big efforts to convince Russia not to invade. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time right here on Monocle Radio. You are back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. I'm Chris Chermak. Now, Germany, like many countries, has been racked with various transport strike actions over the last few weeks, and today it is the turn of airlines. Lufthansa's ground staff are walking out of their jobs for a one-day warning strike, as these things are known in Germany, forcing the German flagship carrier to cancel a majority of its flights. While the travel and aviation analyst Sally Gethin is with me here in studio, I'm delighted to say. Sally, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I did want to ask you before we get to Lufthansa, actually, about Boeing, because there is always news about Boeing these days, and there has been more in terms of a development, an investigation into the door that flew off a plane. Yes. Uh, well, Boeing is in a bit of a mess at the moment, to be quite frank. It's... Um, it dragged itself back from the brink um, after the uh, 737 MAX crashes uh, before the pandemic. And now it's it's back there again um, under fierce scrutiny from uh, the uh, from Congress. Uh, and, yeah, what's come out uh, overnight, more or less, is that the uh, door plugs... So, there was this door on an Alaska Airlines flight that um, came off uh, in flight and miraculously all 180 people on board um, were not, uh, they suffered some injuries but but nothing uh, fatal or, or incredibly serious. But that door came off, it was known as a plug door um, and the problem seems to go back to... Uh, a disconnect between the supplier, uh, Spirit, uh, is a company called Spirit, and Boeing, uh, because the the bolts that keep that plug door in place were missing. They were they they are critical to keep that door in situ, and that's the door that flew off in flight. 
And basically, the the finger's being pointed in all different directions at the moment. There's no record of, um, unbelievably, uh, the signing off of the door between the supplier and the airframer, Boeing. So uh, huge questions being asked. And also there are many questions over quality control and safety in general at Boeing. Um, Airlines are really concerned and uh, Emirates, for example, is sending its own engineers to oversee some of the management and the implementation of quality control at Boeing. So there are many, many repercussions from this. Um, it's it's a big topic. It was hard to, you know, dissect it quickly. But the upshot is that uh, the door was never fixed in place. So the airplane should never have been flown in the first mm. place. And it's just a miracle that nobody was killed. No, absolutely. And it is a story we've been following closely, but appreciate you giving us a little update on that. We did otherwise uh, want to talk about Lufthansa. They are used to strikes, I feel like, over over the last decade or so. It's happened quite often also when I was in Germany covering this story. Uh, but how bad is this one? So this strike comes in the midst of um, a nationwide transport industrial action in Germany. So to put that into context, um, obviously it's an it's it's significant in terms of the aviation industry and airline networks. But to put it into context, um, the travelling public in Germany, they're just being beleaguered at the moment. There have been several um, transport strikes and there was an airport security strike uh, mm. last week as well. Um, and now this comes on top of it. This is the sort of mother of all strikes, if you like, um, hitting Germany today, German air travellers. And the ground staff or Bodenpersonal is the German term for them. They are going on strike. Their union, Verdi, um, is is doing the discussions with Lufthansa and their requests or their demands for a 12.5% pay rise over a year and one-off bonuses to counter inflation have not been met. But Lufthansa, in turn, says that it has met these demands and is highly critical of this strike taking place. Well, and the mother of all strikes, as you called it, I mean, it is interesting with Lufthansa and and frankly, as you say, in transport in general in Germany, there are so many different unions that can potentially strike the airport security that you mentioned. The pilots have their own union as well. What is your sense of kind of is there danger of more of this down the line? Yes, there is danger of more of this. And in fact, this union has already threatened more action going forward. And it seems to have really found its voice with Lufthansa. And we're talking about um, 25,000 individuals working at the key airports of the, the Frankfurt base for Lufthansa, but also Munich, Dusseldorf, Berlin and Hamburg. I mean, that's that's a pretty heavy contingent, like army of people. And they are critical. I mean, I used to edit an airport. Uh, a magazine called Airport Support, which covered purely ground support. And I can tell you, having gone behind the scenes at many of these airports, including at Frankfurt, these people are critical. They are literally the boots on the ground at the airport. Mm. And despite all the tech in the world, you have to have that in place. It's disrupting um, a thousand flights today. So... uh, uh, reckon to be a hundred thousand passengers in all. Now that's a severe dent in uh, Lufthansa's airline network. Don't forget that it's part of the Lufthansa group of airlines. There's a number of large airlines within that group and a member of the Star Alliance. So this will have a knock-on effect on uh, uh, 
connectivity as a whole, uh, even globally, actually, because it is such a huge legacy airline that it will affect its um, its con- connections going, you know, rippling out further in other continents. And just quickly, Sally, do you get the sense of, is there any way that Lufthansa can get this under control? I mean, these kinds of strikes are really becoming a serious problem for aviation in general. Yes, um, I think, uh, of course, I'm not, I'm not sort of privy to the actual negotiations, what is going on, but it seems that um, there isn't enough negotiation going on between the two sides. And I think that's the critical first step to be able, be able to resolving an issue like this. And... Uh, I think the acrimony develops when there is this sort of standoff sometimes. I think this is kind of almost um, delivering a nasty blow, a, a bit of a lesson to the management from the airline to say, look, we threatened this, this is what we can do. So it depends what the attitude of um, management and, you know, cast and sport, the CEOs, uh, you know, their approach as well to, to dealing with this. But Yes, it it will. They're a very profitable airline and a group of airlines as well. But even so, um, they will have to shell out to passengers. And actually, on that aspect of it, passengers are grumbling that they're not getting the refunds on time and that even many of them are owed um, back pay, if you like, in terms of refunds in the past. So there's many things that Lufthansa has to get across now, um, has to be across to be able to to perform um, uh, and deliver you know, the promises of its brand. Sally Gethin, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Azerbaijan is heading to the polls for snap elections today, called by President Ilham Aliyev to take advantage of a wave of patriotic sentiment after the country's capture of Nagorno-Karabakh from the from Armenia. Aliyev is going for a fifth term, and the outcome of the election is pretty much a done deal. But Richard Giragosian is a director of the Regional Studies Center Think Tank. He joins us from Yerevan. Richard, how fair are these elections today likely to be? Well, I would say with fair certainty, the only predictable outcome from this early election in Azerbaijan is the lack of a genuinely free and fair election. And I say that for two reasons. First, we saw a rather serious pre-election crackdown targeting civil society, the opposition and journalists, most notably. Secondly, Azerbaijan is very much a governance by family affair. In fact, the father and son have ruled the country since 1993, and there hasn't been a free election since then, meaning that there is little practice and even less tradition of true democratic choice. So that's one thing that has been going back for a long time. I I do have to ask, in a way, would it have mattered, this crackdown on dissent? I mean, Azerbaijan's victory in Nagorno-Karabakh is pretty popular. Or was there any sort of controversy to that back in Azerbaijan? Well, that's a good point, Chris, because what President Aliyev is doing is seeking an early, fresh mandate riding the wave of nationalism and rather bellicose rhetoric. However, the fundamental outlook for 
stability remains poor. This is still a country where there is a very small corrupt elite. And in this context, this election is very important for consolidating Aliyev's gains. But I do think the election in and of itself will not be enough to to make up for the lack of legitimacy. Well, and polling is actually taking place in Nagorno-Karabakh itself for the first time in the kind of post-Soviet era. How are things seen there, do you get the sense? Well, living in the next-door neighbor, Armenia, there's a genuine lack of surprise but degree of outrage. In fact, since the forced expulsion of thousands of Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh, President Aliyev actually voted for himself in the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, adding salt to the wound, if you will. But at the same time, I do think this is unsustainable. The lack of democracy and the extent of entrenched corruption is a ticking time bomb for uh, Azerbaijan. Hmm, interesting. I mean, in that sense, if it is a ticking time bomb, what what do you make of a fifth term? What would a fifth term look like for Aliyev? What what will he do with his mandate? Well, two observations. First of all, it's important to remember this is the fifth term where no one in Azerbaijan under the age of 30 remembers a different president, Aliyev, either the father or the son. So in terms of change, this is a missed opportunity. This is less an election and more a selection of leadership. But secondly, at the same time, uh, what we see in terms of this authoritarian drama is a fresh mandate in one important psychological regard. President Ilham Aliyev, with his forced expulsion of the Armenians, has now stepped out of the shadow of his father for the first time. And psychologically, this is very important. Richard Giragosian in Yerevan, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to Monocle Radio. And finally, on today's show, if you have ever backpacked across Southeast Asia, you may have found yourself wearing a pair of pants or trousers with an imprint of elephants trampling all over them. Well, these so-called elephant pants have now gone local, popular among young Thais, and therefore, of course, the subject of a trade and copyright dispute with China. Thailand has now ordered its ports to keep watch for elephant pants, and joining us to tell us why is our Asia editor, James Chambers, from Bangkok. James, how many of these do you have in your own closet? Are you wearing a pair right now? Our listeners wouldn't know the difference. I can happily uh, say that I've not got a pair of elephant pants. I have not bought a pair since I moved to Bangkok, and I have never owned a pair. Although I did buy one for friends who visited me over Christmas for them to take back with them to London. So um, they are a very popular uh, item to, to buy when you visit here. <laughs> and why, why are they so popular? And tell us why they're suddenly so popular among the local population, among Thais themselves. Well, you see these I mean, elephant print trousers are at every big market here, including the most famous one, Chatuchak, uh, and they are quite a convenient thing to buy. They're very thin, they're very light, um, and Thailand, though people might be surprised, is, is quite a, a modest and conservative country, so you need to cover up when you go to see a lot of the tourist sites like the temples. 
um, and also we have uh, plenty of mosquitoes. So they're a convenient thing to have in your suitcase uh, and a popular souvenir. They're also very, very cheap. I mean, you can, uh, if, you, if, you're, if you know what you're doing in terms of haggling, you can probably get one for about 100 baht, which is about you know, two and a half euros. <laughs> so, so what have the ports been told then uh, to do about these elephant pants? And are the instructions to the ports to keep watch, I mean, is that unique? Or are they kind of just adding this to a list of contraband items to check for? Well, so this time of year, we've got Chinese New Year approaching this weekend. It's one of the big high seasons for tourists coming into Thailand. And obviously, the, the biggest number uh, will come from China and they'll be coming in their millions. Now, you know, one of the first pit stops for these Chinese tourists will be the market to pick up some elephant trousers. And, you know, that should be good news for the Thai economy. It should be good for the retailers and it should be good for the manufacturers. A lot of these trousers are made in, in the north, in, in, in and around Chiang Mai. But uh, the big scandal or the, the big talking point that's emerged uh, recently is the fact that a lot of these trousers aren't actually made in Thailand at all. They're, they're made in China and they're being bought at very, you know, at very big knockdown prices by uh, some of the market retailers, and then you know, sold to to Chinese tourists as if they're buying a, a made in Thailand product. So what um, what has happened recently is that this has become a big talking point, um, and the commerce minister in Thailand uh, has stepped in to say that you know this is outrageous. You know, if you're a tourist coming to Thailand and you're buying elephant trousers, you you would think that you're buying you know a, a Thai product, uh, not some kind of a cheaper version from China. So he is issued a directive to his his customs and border team to ha- you know keep an eye out for for imports of these uh made in china uh elephant pants because he said and i'm not sure if if this is true or not that the the, the design for these elephant pants has actually been copyrighted so these uh companies that are importing uh these made in china pants could be infringing thai copyright um, I mean, to me, that sounds a bit like the Brits trying to copyright fish and chips, but that is what he said. Uh, we'll see, I guess, if that's true and how successful the Thai customs can be in, in stopping these uh, contraband from coming in. That, that was going to be my question, James. I mean, how does this work? Are there any other similar cases? How, how is China really copywriting over something that you can get in any market for 100 baht, as you talked about, and there are so many different types of of designs, different people producing these. I mean, is, is this sort of a national heritage case? Is there anything like that? So, I mean, at the moment, the Thai government is pushing Thai soft power. And one of the kind of pillars of this is fashion. Um, so some people are seeing this as, you know, trying to protect uh, Thai heritage. Uh, but, you know, there is there is a another um, part of, of the conversation which says that you know these trousers are just kind of cheap tourist tact right we should not be focusing on this uh, and we should be focusing on you know quality Thai designs and and, and, and Thai materials Thai textiles uh, and, a, and a, a kind of a, another funny elephant pant related incident happened only last week when um, a, a panel or a committee of, of, of kind of fashion uh, experts and designers resigned on mass, 
uh, because they were outraged by a plan from one of the other government agencies to host uh, a competition in a couple of weeks' time to try and break uh, the Guinness Book of World Records for the amount of elephant pants you can put on at the same time. <laughs> so, th- so they're going to have a competition in one of the big malls here to see who can wear the most elephant pants at the same time. Um, and I guess these designers were, were found that a bit uh, outrageous because instead of trying to promote um, you know, Thai designers and, and, and Thai quality produce and fashion, um, it's a bit of a, a kind of a, a race to the bottom. So there are a lot of people here who, who would, uh, I guess, would rather the government wasn't concentrating on protecting copyrights of uh, Thai elephant pants and actually focusing on more more uh, Thai made in th- Thailand products with a bit more uh, value attached to it. Well, and just finally, James, does that mean we could find high-end elephant pants at a retailer near you in Thailand soon? Well, they do exist, and I will admit, I did. I say, I say, I, I said, my wife did buy some very, very lovely um, c- clothing for our children for Christmas involving you know elephants uh, el- the elephant is the national animal um and you can find some some very nice very good quality uh made in thailand uh items of clothing that don't uh you know use this these 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 patterns that we see uh all, all t- tourists wear but then again it's 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 fun i wouldn't i wouldn't uh say people shouldn't buy them um, and you see it on all ages it's not just young backpackers I often see a pair of uh, older uh, visitors you know a husband and wife walking around arm in arm both wearing the same pattern it's very sweet and hopefully when they go back to their country um, you know they continue to wear them James Chambers thank you very much for joining us and that is all the time we have for this edition of The Briefing it was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monhan Coombs our researcher was Neoma Akwe and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time I'm Chris Termack goodbye and thanks for listening 